Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, just to let you know, the story mentions suicide several times. The coronavirus is forcing meat companies that feed our country to close processing plants. Nearly 750 employees are infected from the now... When COVID first hit the country, it caused chaos in our supply chain across the country and the world. Coronavirus cases in Iowa's Black Hawk County have doubled in recent days to 356. And public health officials say 90% trace back to employees at this Tyson meatpacking plant. People still wanted chicken and beef, so many kill plants across the nation didn't tap the brakes. And that had some big consequences. CBS News has confirmed COVID cases in at least 17 meat processing plants in 10 states. I experienced this story firsthand. I was there. I reported on the Tyson facility in Wallula outside of Pasco. At the time, many people were staying home But meat cutters kept packing their lunch and heading in. The Tyson plant at Wallula is massive. Industrial stacks rise up from the building, puffing out white clouds. Huge pens with horseback cowboys riding herd are out back. And twin flagpoles, one with a blue Tyson flag and another with an American flag, flap right out front. About 1,400 people work here, speaking nearly a dozen languages. And in May of 2020, some 280 workers at this Tyson plant tested positive. The plant ground to a halt. The health department organized mass vaccine events. And families say several people from the plant even died of COVID. Delays like this are a big problem for these meat packing plants. Usually everything works on a set schedule. When a calf is born, its owners know around the date it'll be killed for meat. It's that precise. Cattle on feedlots across the Northwest are delivered to the Tyson plant like clockwork. It was designed to send cattle as many as 365 days a year into that Tyson plant to be turned into, among other things, Wendy's hamburgers. Cattle on a feedlot are fed a special ration each day so they'll grow fast. It's called days on feed. But with the delays at the meat facilities, the delivery of animals was backing up. That's a problem. If the cattle are kept on feed for too long, they'll become too big. And if they're too big, they won't fit the meat plant's saws and equipment. So Tyson was scrambling to keep their employees COVID-free and get the plants up and operating again. Tyson says workplaces will be retrofitted with partitions and thermometers. Like much of the country, Tyson was in crisis mode. Those at the top had to figure out what to do with all the beef destined for this now shut-down plant. Tyson started to examine more closely the number of cattle it had waiting around. And they noticed a cow pie of a disaster at Cody Easterday's ranch. (music) 
This is Ghost Herd. I'm Anna King. In the fall of 2020, COVID forced Tyson to look at their inventory closer. Tyson executives looked into how many cattle were on the books for Cody Easterday's ranch. They found more than $300 million of cattle there. That's more than they had ever had there. It was bigger than they expected. Tyson's officials started to get suspicious. Tyson sent a top cattle buyer out to Washington State to check on it. Where were these cattle actually located? That executive went out to find them and couldn't. Even with COVID backing things up, there were far too many animals on Tyson's books and far too few in the actual pens. On the evening of Monday, November 30th, a man on the ground in Pasco called back to Tyson's headquarters. He even called an exec right at home. It was around this time I started hearing rumors. Tyson was missing some beef. I remember getting several text messages from different farmers and people in agribusiness that were my sources. Everyone wanted to know who could have pulled off a fraud this big. One ranch stood out in Washington State. One ranch made up 2% of Tyson's total beef program across the entire nation. Easterday Ranches was on everyone's lips. I was trying to figure it all out, so I called and texted the head of Washington Cattle Feeders Association. He refused to talk. Meanwhile, in early December, behind closed doors, Tyson executives and Cody are also trying to figure it all out. You and I both know the facts that one day Cody Easterday picked up the phone, called Tyson and said, you know, I admit to certain activities. This is Eric Rebell. He's an expert on the Easterday case, and we'll hear more from him later in this episode. Turns out, right after Tyson visited his ranch and later called to question him, Cody confessed. He had scammed Tyson and another company out of $244 million dollars. But according to Tyson, Cody only admitted owing the company. He told them he was merely doing some, quote, forward billing. The Easterdays and Tyson were in sort of a marriage. They went hand in glove. Tyson wanted a steady supply of beef, and Easterday supplied that. It's just that Cody also had a secret. And now, relations were fraying. Trust was gone. Tyson officials flew drones to count the cattle that were actually on Cody's ranch. They couldn't find hundreds of thousands of animals that they'd already paid for. As Tyson was unraveling it all, Cody showed them how he meticulously kept track of the cattle that Tyson had paid for, both those that existed and those that did not. Tyson officials even asked Cody what he'd done with all the money. He explained that he'd, quote, pissed it away on the Merck, referring to his gambling problems on the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. But Tyson wasn't the only difficult confession Cody had to make. One night, Cody came home and told his wife Debbie what he'd been up to. 
We don't know exactly how it went down between the couple, but in court documents, she says, anger does not explain what I felt that night. But she put her own feelings aside to comfort her husband who had confessed his most terrible secret. She says that night and the following days were heart-wrenching. Cody also had to tell us boys. Debbie had asked Cody to tell them himself. She wanted them to see their dad vulnerable and heartbroken without her as the crutch. After telling his family, Cody gets on a plane to South Dakota to Tyson Corporate Headquarters. Tyson and Cody are negotiating a plan to pay the meat giant back. The plan? He'd still feed cattle, but apply any profits to the debts he owed for the previous fraud. Cody and Tyson were sort of in couples counseling. They were coming towards an agreement on how Cody could set things right with the meat giant. Tyson only talked to us once on background. The company turned down multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. While Cody was trying to get sorted with Tyson, he had one more confession left. He had to tell his father, Gail Easterday. Debbie says Gail was Cody's very best friend, business partner, and role model. But whether he ever got the chance to come clean to his father is unclear. On the way home from the meeting with Tyson in the airport, Cody got word that tragedy had struck. State Patrol 911, what's the location of your emergency? Uh, Highway I-82, milepost 13. Cody's father, Gail, died. There is a semi-truck blocking the westbound lane after he hit uh, what looks to be two pickup trucks in that on that side over there. Gail was the patriarch of the Easterday clan and a legend in the community known for his always crunched on weathered cowboy hat. And tragically, the semi-truck that Gail crashed into was a semi-truck hauling Easterday potatoes. The family's steerhead brand was painted on the side of the door. Farmer Alan Schreiber told me the crash was just unimaginable. The, the coincidence, the, the irony, twist of fate, I don't know what you call it, but there's no two ways that you can know about that story and, and not have it be wrenching. A post on the Easter Day Company Facebook page memorializes Gale. It says that he had two loves, farming and family. People in the community that I spoke to wondered if Gale knew about the fraud. If Gail had recently found out about what Cody had been up to, perhaps he was distracted while driving. When I get upset, my mind starts going a million months, and I start thinking about stuff, and I don't think clearly. Some folks wonder if Gail's crash wasn't accidental, that he might have taken his own life. But Ben Casper, Gail's tire guy, doesn't agree. He told me he once chatted with Gail several years back over lunch at the Frontier Inn. It was soon after another prominent businessman in the community had taken his own life. And he said, you know, anytime I start feeling like that, 
I just go to the store and get myself a couple of six packs and then I don't have that problem. You know, I just think that he, I, I don't think that's the way he dealt with problems. I don't think he would have ended it like that. But perhaps there's a third explanation for what happened with Gail. The cowboy was 79 years old and the family states in court documents that Gail's health was suffering, that he had Parkinson's, and that the intersection where it happened is a tricky one. Alan Schreiber knows the spot well. It's not a good intersection. You're supposed to go under the interpass and turn left to go this way. He turned left just before the underpass and went on the on-ramp. So maybe the crash was just a tragic coincidence. According to Cody's wife, Debbie, Gail never knew about the fraud. She says, it's a gut punch that will remain. Cody never got the chance to tell his dad. This will haunt him forever. And in the midst of grief, Cody is still trying to hammer out a deal with Tyson. But it turns out, Cody's going to mess with Tyson one more time. At SoundSide, we bring you news and conversation rooted in the Pacific Northwest. Hi, I'm Libby Denkman. I think of my job hosting SoundSide as, number one, asking tough questions of powerful people, the questions you, KUOW listeners, want answered. And two, bringing you a daily slice of the fascinating, confounding, and often goofy side of life in Washington State. Join me for SoundSide at noon and 8 p.m. on KUOW or anytime on the SoundSide podcast. One of the most important properties the Easterdays owned is called the North Lot. It was where they kept the real cattle, not fake. The on-the-hoof animals bound for Tyson's blades. The North Lot was 960 acres. That's about 30 city blocks, or big enough to be permitted for 30,000 cattle. The single biggest source of beef going to the largest meatpacking facility in the Pacific Northwest a valuable piece of property, an unencumbered piece of ground, no lean, and really attractive to Tyson. They had to have a place to grow their beef for their processing plant. But Cody had a different idea. On January 22, 2021, Cody pulled the rug out from under Tyson. And so in kind of the dead of night, they sold the north feedlot for $16 million to Tyson's competitor. There would be no deal. Cody sold the valuable property to a giant meat slicing competitor called AB Livestock out of Boise, Idaho. It was one of the first public signs that the relationship had soured between Tyson and the Easter days. This whole thing was a really big deal. I mean, we've never seen anything like that. No one's seen anything like this happen in this country. Of of ag fraud case like this. The Easter Day strategy was to sell the property fast. According to court documents, Tyson didn't learn about the sale until after the deal had already closed. 
Tyson was upset because they claimed that Cody sold the property for below market value. Tyson was hotter than a red iron pulled just from the fire. The company got a judge to issue a restraining order against Cody in Easterday Ranches. He couldn't sell or transfer any other land or assets. But Cody already had that money from selling off the North Lot out from under Tyson. He immediately dispersed it to those close to him. According to court documents, about $5 million went to Easterday Farms and a sibling of Cody's for owed feed costs. About $2 million went to Easterday Farms for feed that had not yet been invoiced. Nearly another $5 million went to a loan on Easterday Farms, and more than a million went to Cody's lawyers. Cody was using the sale to pay back those close to him, Tyson said. Just a few days later, Tyson sues Cody, a direct hit back for the North Lot sale. And this is where the close marriage between the beef supplier and the beef cutter slices open. Tyson was demanding repayment for the stolen money. This lawsuit was a bombshell. No one was expecting such a large-scale fraud. And the Easterdays were just so well-respected in our community. I'd known Cody for more than a decade. We used to talk alfalfa and cattle when I was a young ag reporter for the Tri-City Herald. Cody and I were never friends. We weren't barbecuing burgers in the backyard, but I've known him as a pillar in the community. As an ag reporter, you couldn't help but slam into the Eastern name all the time. So I was shocked when I found out he was accused of lying in a big way. But there it was, in black and white, in the legal documents. I published my first Easter Day story on January 27th, 2021. That's the week Tyson filed a lawsuit in Franklin County Superior Court. After my story about the Tyson lawsuit against Cody published, my phone just blew up. When this hit two two years ago, with Gail and Cody. I could not sleep for, I don't know, weeks. I I got sick. The downfall of the Easter days hit many people in the community hard. I would just disbelieve. Makes you sad. Don't condone it, but at the same time, you're just, you feel bad. (laughs) When I heard it, I thought, I don't see Cody doing something that would have been considered a criminal action. I just thought this has got to be an accounting error. But it wasn't an accounting error. Cody did do this. In fact, in the spring of 2021, on March 31st, he pleads guilty to a federal charge of wire fraud. He could be facing up to 20 years in prison, and he has to pay back $244 million So Cody's in a lot of trouble, and he knows it. He's declared bankruptcy in federal court. Bankruptcy puts the pause on all pending litigation. It gives time to see what's good in business and what is bad and needs to be cut out. So when Cody declared bankruptcy, it gave him time to rehabilitate his business, even with Tyson 
sharpening knives. But this particular bankruptcy had an extra twist. And, um, you know, owing to the fraud and, and the, the, the expediency, there was little time, there was no time for any preparation by the bankruptcy. So the debtors filed for bankruptcy in what we, what we would call a free fall. This is Eric Rebell again. He's with a group called Dundon Advisors and worked on the Easter Day bankruptcy case representing the farm's unsecured creditors. This idea of a freefall bankruptcy Eric mentioned is unusual. Most of the time, a bankruptcy can be seen coming. The owners and creditors know the business is struggling. It isn't a surprise things are going south. A freefall bankruptcy is opposite. Things are super chaotic. And that was a big problem when you have thousands of hungry cattle used to a regular feeding time. The ranch had the potential for a great a great tragedy. You know, I mean, one of the biggest risks in livestock cattle operations is the maintenance of, of cattle in a humane kind of way. There were still more than 70,000 head of real cattle on Cody's feedlots, and they had several more months left to mature. And ready to go to, you know, where cows go uh, to the slaughterhouse, I guess. All of the Easter Day's assets for both their farms and ranches were locked up by the bankruptcy, so there was no ready money for feed. The cattle on Cody's lot were in danger of starving. Eric says there have been bankruptcy cases in the past where animals experienced abuse and maltreatment. Everyone involved in the Easter Day case wanted to avoid that tragedy. Plus, cattle are valuable. They're like a living bank account. As long as you keep them fed and healthy, they'll eventually pay when they're ready. So there was Tyson's profits just lazing there, tails swishing. The land the cattle were standing on was sold out from under their cloven hooves. The judge and the lawyers scrambled to get a deal with the feed companies. If these companies kept up deliveries, they'd get paid. So some cattle were moved, while the more mature cattle were taken care of on enemy ground. And when they were ready for slaughter, they were shipped in batches to the Tyson plant. I mean, the way the patriarch of the family kind of built up this enterprise that started as a family business and continued as a family business, um, it was kind of a beautiful culmination of a lifetime of effort. This is Andrea coles She's an expert on corporate bankruptcy at the University of Oregon School of Law in Eugene. She says no one really wins totally in bankruptcy, but the goal is for everyone owed money to get something. Maybe the most successful bankruptcies are ones where no one wins. That's sort of the goal of bankruptcy is not to have anyone walk away from bankruptcy feeling like, I've got all the marbles. Um, but to have everyone feel a little bit, share the pain, everyone to have a little bit, everyone to get a haircut a little bit um, so that everyone can come out with something rather than one or two people coming out with everything. The shared pain of this bankruptcy hit the Columbia Basin farming community in the chops. Uh, it took a uh, really well-respected family name and drug it through the mud. And it had a significant economic impact on this community. And it's, it's just, it's all too bad. It's terrible. It's, it's saddening. Alan Schreiber tells me dozens of people that worked for Cody 
lost their jobs. Alan personally knows one of those former employees. She worked there for 20-some years and doesn't have a paycheck now. She's, we'll say, a little older, and she thought she was going she gonna to retire rather than to go back out and start over again in a new job. In total, Allen believes that the Easter Day operation shutting down is going to cost the Columbia Basin community tens of millions of dollars. Andrea Coles bier says this entire Easter Day saga is like a Shakespearean tragedy. It's sort of a, an empire that grew and, and then collapsed, and maybe through some tragic flaw of, of the main player. For his part, Eric Rebell sees this whole Easter Day bankruptcy as cinematic. This is a great American tragedy to, to some degree. You know, it, it, it has all the elements of a very, and it's classically American. It's a great American success story that ends, that is crippled by greed. It wasn't just a bankruptcy that split up bank accounts, sold off fleets of trucks and tractors. The biggest part of the bankruptcy was the sale of 22,000 acres of farmland. It's a swath of intensely valuable dirt, the heart of Cody's farming empire. That former empire is outside of Finley, Washington. When you drive up to what's now called Riverbend Farm, there's a place where the pavement ends and the gravel starts. It's where hawks glide off power poles that reach out across a long ridgeline. In the distance, the Columbia River glints. The low afternoon light reflects off the irrigation pivots, pouring on the water to tall as my head corn. Megan Farmer, my photographer, flies a drone from a county road over this acreage just before sunset. From the 400-foot view, this land is beautiful. Expanses of green corn in tight rows, irrigation pouring on. And these 22,000 acres of valuable farmland show us what the future of farming in America will look like. Long, black shadows hug the landscape where we stand. It makes me appear much taller than I actually am. It's quiet here. It belies a coming battle between two ag giants. It's a battle over this land, and it's a battle over that blue ribbon of fresh Columbia River water rolling past here. That's next time on Ghost Herd. I'm Anna King.
Ghost Heard is a joint production of KUOW, Puget Sound Public Radio, and Northwest Public Broadcasting, both members of the NPR Network, a coalition of public media podcast makers. To support our work, contribute to KUOW, NWPB, or your local NPR station, and tell a friend or two about this podcast. It helps. Ghost Heard is produced by Matt Martin and me, Anna King. Whitney Henry Lester is our project manager. Jim Gates is our editor. Original music written and performed by James D. Kindle, recorded by Addison Schulberg, with additional musicians Roger Conley, Andy Steele, and Adam Lang. I'm your host, Anna King. If you have thoughts or questions about Ghost Herd, we're listening. Get in touch at kow.org slash feedback. My name's Claire McGrain, and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.